Well, good morning. Happy New Year, and I hope you had a, a nice uh, Christmas and New Year. It was, uh, for our family, really an enjoyable time. Our whole family was able to be with us, and Karen's folks even came, and everything was wonderful, except I was still, and am still, recuperating from my appendectomy. But uh, it was just a wonderful time, and I hope you enjoyed the holidays as well. This morning, we're going to begin a brand new series that's focusing on God. It's titled, The More You Know. And I absolutely love beginning January's, January with a focus on God, because I believe that there's just something that happens when we elevate our vision just a little bit to see what our God is like. It helps us see beyond all of the stuff of this world. And there's certainly a lot of stuff in this world, but there's something about focusing on who God is and what God is like that just, just kind of raises our vision and allows us, I think, to have hope in a world where it seems like maybe there's not much hope. It's very important, though, that we have the right view of God. Imagine, for example, if your view of God is that he is an angry judge, just think for a moment if that's what your view of God is, that he's angry all the time, he's the type of God that's always looking for the things that you're doing wrong so that he could jump on you. If that's your view of God, how would that impact your relationship with him? Do you think that if you viewed God that way that you would run to him when you had concerns or problems? Would you view God as a a friend that you just are, are, you gravitate toward God, or would you instead find that you're avoiding God, not wanting to get close to Him? And yet, a lot of people have that view of God. And the problem is not God; the problem is our view of God. We just do not see God correctly. Now, we we oftentimes don't see Him correctly in other ways. I think some people, for example, view God as kind of a a little bit of a Santa Claus in the sky. Or maybe we view him as an old grandfather. I say old grandfather because it seems like grandfathers these days are younger than they used to be. But when you think of an old grandfather, um, I think of somebody that gives the grandkids whatever they want and then is a little bit naive about what the kids are actually doing. And sometimes I think we view God in that way, like he's just someone that's going to give us everything we ask for, but he really doesn't know what's going on in our lives, doesn't care about what's going on. Our, our view of God really impacts how we relate to him. And the problem is none of us has a completely accurate view of what God is like. Not one of us. Now, this, this new series we're doing is, is going to talk about what God is like. And I think some of you here today probably are thinking it's a little bit proud of you even to suggest you know what God is like. You know, who are you to say God is like this or God is like that? And, and I realize even speaking about this, I need to be very careful because I'm trying to represent what God is like. But I'm not going to be just sharing my own thoughts about this. I'm convinced that the Bible's depiction of what God is like is accurate. And so I'm hoping that together, as we look at various sections in the Bible, we'll conclude that God is a certain way, and then I think we'll be gravitated toward God. It'll help our relationship with Him and help us to relate to Him properly and understand what He's like, and I think it will improve our prayer life to realize, well, this is what God is like, and I think we'll end up praying more effectively. Now, before we jump into the attributes of God, though, 
This week, I'd like to focus on a bigger question or a broader question, the question of the existence of God, because I realize that some may be struggling with that question. And so before I get into the attributes of God, I'd like to talk today about why I believe God exists in the first place. Is there evidence out there to demonstrate that God really does exist? And this is an important question. I agree with what Mortimer Adler, who was the co-editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, had to say about this. He said, more consequences for thought and action follow from the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other question. He's basically saying there are more implications to this one question than any other question you could ask. Is there a God? And if so, what does it mean for our lives? And if you don't believe there's a God, what does it mean for our lives? Now today, my main takeaway is this, that I'm convinced the evidence is everywhere. God is. It's a simple takeaway. I, I think the evidence is everywhere. God is, God exists, and not just in the pages of the Bible, as we're gonna see in a minute. And, and I'd like to give you some questions to ask yourself to help us arrive at that conclusion. Questions that are kind of biblically based, but they're really more logical questions that we could ask ourselves to get to the right answer. And I'm, I'm convinced that oftentimes when there are questions about this or that, the answer is the one that makes the most sense. And so I'm hoping as we explore these questions, you'd say, well, when you put it all together, the evidence points to the reality that there is indeed a God. The first question that we should ask ourselves is this, how do we explain creation? How do we explain all of creation? Now, if we were to walk out of this room here and you look outside, everything you see has been created or it just came into being by itself. I don't know that there are any other options. All of creation, you look at the trees, you look at the sky, you consider the, the birds of the air and the fish in the sea, and, and you look at all of it and you ask the question, well, how did this come into being? Is it something that just just came into being on its own, that's working together so nicely, or was there a creator who created it all? Now, I'm convinced that there's a creator, and I might be a little bit simple in this way, but when I look at certain things of creation, I, I just can't get past the fact that it's just impossible except that there's a God. For example, I don't know that any of you have ever wondered this. I suppose some of you have, I don't know. But I look at a tree that's made of wood, obviously, and it's tall. And of course, um, our house is made of wood and wood is a really solid material. I cannot figure out then how water gets to the leaves. I, I, mean, it just, I, I know that there's an explanation for it, but I just, think it's remarkable. I think it's remarkable that you can plant a little seed and out comes a life that produces not only some amazing plant, but produces hundreds of more seeds, just like the one that was planted. I look at all of this and I say, I just cannot believe that all of this just happened randomly. In the Old Testament, Job made the argument that you could even ask the animals 
and they would tell you that God exists. In Job 12, verses 7 through 10, we read, But ask the animals, and they will instruct you. Ask the birds of the sky, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will instruct you. Let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The life of every living thing is in his hand, as well as the breath of all mankind. His argument is just look around, ask, ask creation itself. The evidence is there. Even the animals understand this. Now, within this question about creation and how it all came into being, there are three arguments that are often given to help answer the question. The first one is called the cosmological argument. And it goes this way, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. If something is happening, something causes that something to happen. In Australia right now, there are wildfires everywhere. They're just, just everywhere. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to Australia, and I just absolutely love the country. And so it's, it's kind of weighing on me a little bit as I think that the whole country seems like it's up in flames. Well, how are the fires starting? Well, there's always something that starts them. There's always a cause. Nobody just assumes that it just starts. Now, they're saying right now it's the heat and the, the electric, you know, of when um, there are storms and other things, lightning will start fires. Sometimes it's people that start fires. But nobody looks at a fire and thinks it starts by itself. If there is an effect, there has to be a cause. And so this argument suggests that when you look at creation, something happened here. Aristotle called God the first cause. A second response to this is called the teleological or design argument. It goes this way, a design implies there must be an intelligent designer. Uh, recently, I got an, a new f Apple watch. Uh, I wasn't gonna buy one. In fact, I was mystified why people were buying watches again because we finally got away from watches. Like my generation finally got away from having to wear watches because you got your phone and then suddenly everybody's buying watches again. It's like. I don't know that that's progress. But my son was given a watch and he already had one. So he called me up and said, would you like mine? And I said, well, sure. And he sent it to me. This watch is remarkable. The things that it does, it, it kept, checks my pulse and it, it tells me to breathe when I should breathe and it, it keeps track of exercise and it's, it tells me when I get messages and it, goes, it just goes on. All these things that this thing does. The teleological argument, which goes a design implies there must be an intelligent designer. It's usually illustrated by a watch because if you found a watch just on the ground, not one of us would assume that it, it assembled itself. You'd look at something that complex and not a single one of us would look at that and say, well, obviously the parts just all came together by themselves and it all clicked into place and now you got to watch. It doesn't work that way. And the universe is infinitely more complex. 
The way everything works, everything fits together is infinitely more complex. It suggests that there must be a God. And when we look at various aspects of creation, we should arrive at this conclusion. Dr. Ravi Zacharias made this point. There's enough information in a single thread of human DNA to fill 600,000 pages of information. This is specified complexity, not just aesthetics. One scientist has remarked that the possibility of the human enzyme and our chemical makeup coming together by accident is one in 10 to the 40,000th power. 10 to the 40,000th power is more than all the atoms and all the known galaxies of the universe. That's how complex this body is, DNA. It's remarkable. It implies that there's a creator. The third argument that comes under this question of creation is the rational argument. And this suggests that the universe operates according to some natural laws which imply a mind behind it. When you think about, for example, in our universe, there's a thing called gravity and there's a, a law called the second law of thermodynamics and there are certain laws that govern the way the, the sun and the moon and the planets all revolve around each other. Realize that these laws keep everything in place. If the sun were one mile closer, I think we'd fry as a planet. It's all just perfect in place. And this argument says there's rationale involved with the laws behind creation and therefore it implies that there's a creator. And of course, Paul talked about this, how creation does indeed reveal the existence of God. Not only that there is a God, but it reveals something about what God is like. In Romans 1.20, he said, for God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse that God has revealed himself through creation, very much like an artist reveals what he or she is like by what is created. Our God has put hints in all of his creation that reveal what he's like. And so how do we explain creation? But there's a second question we can ask ourselves, and that is this, where did we get our sense of right and wrong? How is it that people across the world have arrived at the same conclusion concerning a variety of moral ideas? that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Even people that do not have a Bible will conclude that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We just kind of know it. And so we know that lying is not a good thing and we know that stealing is not a good thing and we know that murder is not a good thing and we know that adultery is not a good thing. We just know that certain things are not good. On the other hand, we know certain things are good to be kind to people, to love people. All cultures on the planet have some of these same ideas. The presence of moral laws suggests there must be a lawgiver, somebody who put it within our hearts. We were, of course, created. We believe in the image of our God, and he has written on our hearts his laws. And that's the only explanation I can think of for why we would arrive at these conclusions. 
While I was uh, sick, I've been reading a number of different books, actually five different ones, as I feel like reading this one or that one, but one of them is more for fun. It's a, a book called Stone Song. It's a, a book about Crazy Horse. It's actually a novel about Crazy Horse, but it provides a little bit of a historical background to this particular Indian. And I thought it was a fascinating book, but at one point in the story, Crazy Horse uh, receives this special honor. He is given the honor of being what's called a shirt wearer. It means that he's being kind of promoted over his tribe and he's someone that others could follow. And in the process of getting this honor, some of the older Indians provide him with some guidelines what it means to be in this role. Here are some of the things they told him. You are obliged to take note of the good of all. You're to think of the welfare of the weak, the widows, and orphans. Think no ill of others and repay not ill for ill. In other words, don't seek revenge. You must be above retaliation, above envy, above greed, and the list goes on and on. And I'm thinking, oh, this sounds like I'm reading this right out of the Bible. And yet these were ones who in their culture had never read the Bible. They weren't familiar with it, but somehow they just arrived at these conclusions. You say, where did that come from? And why are a lot of these conclusions universal? In the New Testament book of Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul made the observation that God's laws are written on our hearts. It's one of the evidence that he exists. In Romans 2, 14 and 15, we read, so when Gentiles or non-Jews or ones who don't have the Old Testament law or the Bible, when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. In other words, they're operating according to some law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this goes on to say their consciences either accuse them or excuse them. And of course, we know this is the case. Even before we know certain rules as children, when we do something that we know is not right, we feel it. We feel this, like, this guilt, like, where did that come from? Even if you didn't know that what you said to your brother or sister was not good, I mean, you, you kind of knew it, and you said it, and you feel bad about it. And where did that sense come from? Well, it appears to come from God who created us in his image. The third question we can ask ourselves is why does beauty exist? We start with asking what about creation? Second, where do we get this sense of right and wrong? But third, why does beauty exist? This is called the aesthetic argument, which just simply raises the question why beauty. Why do we all have a sense of awe and beauty when we see certain things? There's a universal agreement about certain things you see that are awe-inspiring, that are absolutely beautiful. Who could stand at the Grand Canyon and look out and not say, this is, this is beautiful. This is just amazing. And we look at other aspects of creation and we arrive at the same conclusion. We hear the birds singing. We see the, the trees that are changing in color and how beautiful all of that is or the fresh snow that falls and, and just blankets everything in white. And we look at all these things and universally, everyone in this room, I think, would all agree, that's beautiful, that's wonderful, but where does that sense come from? 
It's something that's beyond just survival of the fittest. Beauty is something that oftentimes does not necessarily serve a purpose. An author by the name of J.P. Moreland in his book, Scaling the Secular City, wrote, how likely is it that non-purposeful natural laws should produce the objective beauty that we find all around us? For example, the features of the world such as sunset, fall in Vermont, the human body, the Rocky Mountains, and the singing of birds all exhibit real objective beauty and suggest that the beauty and the examples cannot be accounted for in terms of survival value, natural selection, and the like. There's not an explanation. I think of even like the smell of flowers. Flowers smell beautiful. But I understand that bees don't really smell the flowers the way we do. There's some kind of an electromagnetic thing with the bees. Uh, they can sense, they could see a long distance away and they sense the pollen. And I guess they have some ability to smell, but not like we do. It's not like the beautiful smell of the flowers is drawing the bees. It's just an extra. It's just something that we enjoy because God created beauty and wonder, and he and created color, and he created a universe that's just wonderful to behold and awe-inspiring, and again, reveals things about himself. So the aesthetic argument really puts forth two ideas. One, one is that things are beautiful, period. And second, that we have this sense of beauty that must have come from somewhere. A fourth question I'd like to raise this morning is this, why does the whole world have a concept of God? This is called the universal concept of God. I'm not aware of any people group on the planet ever that has existed that did not have a, an idea of a God. I'm not saying that there aren't people that don't believe in God, and there's certainly groups of people like atheists or whatever who would say they don't believe in God. I get that, but I'm talking about people groups on the planet. The general argument or universal belief argument says that every nation and every culture holds a belief in gods or gods, and, and you can Google this. You go online and you find out all these ancient civilizations have the same concept, that there's at least a god of some kind. Their views of God may differ, but why do they all have this idea? Pick any culture you want, the Babylonian, ancient Babylonian culture, the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, think of of the Inca, uh, Inca Indians or the Mayan Indians or others. You think of the Egyptians and the various gods that are depicted and they worship the Greeks and the Romans and, and one group, tribes that have never, never run into another person outside their tribe, but they're all worshiping God. Where did that come from? And to me, the concept of God is a little bit counterintuitive. What I mean by that is why would people create a being to whom they have to submit? Why would they create a being that they have to obey and, and do what that being says? Why would we put ourselves under that if it did not exist? Part of this argument goes this way. If every effect has a cause adequate to produce it, God is the only cause adequate to produce such a universal belief in God. Therefore, the universal belief in God was caused by God and is evidence that God 
exists. Why does every group on the planet believe in a God? I think because of Adam and Eve. They're created by God and they share their story. Now, what God was like changed with the different groups and over time, but the concept that there is a God is a universal concept. Again, I know some individuals don't believe in a God, but I'm not aware of a people group ever that existed that did not have some sense that there's a God. Where on earth did that concept come from? And then the final question to ask ourselves is how do we explain the Bible? Now this one might be a little bit circular reasoning because if the Bible says there's a God and then God, you know, you're, you're using the Bible to explain that God exists. But I, I'm going one step back on this one and just asking the question, this, this book, the Bible, that talks about God is pretty remarkable. It's pretty amazing and, and where did it come from? because really there's really nothing like it. As many of you know, it was written by 40 different authors plus. It was written over a period of 1,600 years. It was written by people from a variety of backgrounds, from shepherds to kings to fig growers. I mean, different ones penned the different books of the Bible over all this period of time. They lived on different continents. And yet, it's one book. I'm, I'm just amazed at this. I've used before the example of the fact I have a twin brother. And we were raised in the same household. And if we were writing a book together, it would not be an easy process because we'd have trouble agreeing with what the book should say and how, how to present things or particular emphases that we would want to include. It would be a little bit difficult just writing it with somebody who is in my own family, my own culture, born the same time I was born, lived the same life I did, and yet we would have trouble agreeing on certain aspects of this book. But when I read the Bible, I see that God is the same from the beginning to the very end. There's no discrepancy about the way God is. He is the same from Genesis to Revelation. All, I'm not surprised by anything I read about God in any of the pages of the Bible at all. What are people like? Well, the Bible's consistent about that as well. Our brokenness, our fallenness, but also that we were created in the image of God and all this is seen throughout the pages of the Bible and how people get right with God does not change from Genesis to the book of Revelation is always by faith. That's how God wants us to approach him is by faith and, 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 and the whole thing, it's one book. It's one book, and I'm just saying that's impossible if, if God were not behind it. And of course, this is the book that speaks about Christ. And if we're on the subject of how do we know God exists, well, Jesus claimed to be God. He didn't do it in a way that would get him stoned initially, but he said things like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said things like that that demonstrated that he was claiming to be God. And so ultimately, I would say, if we wonder if there is a God, it does come down to the question, was Jesus God? Because that would answer it, of course, if he was God. And of course, you look at the story, you look at history, you realize uh, even secular historians talk about this man, Jesus. Secular historians write about the miracles. They write about his death and burial. They write about his resurrection even, and the tomb is empty. And of course, the Bible points to all of this. 
But I look at the person of Christ and I say, there's a God. And we worship him. Besides the fact that the Bible is filled with prophecies that are remarkable, hundreds of prophecies about, about lots of things, but especially about Jesus, hundreds of years ahead of time, the Bible explains where he'd be born, what kind of life he would live, where he would live. He'd be born in one place, he'd live in another place. It even prophesied that he'd spend a little time in Egypt while he was young. Talked about what he would do, talked about how he would die, the nature of his death and why he would die and how he'd rise again from the dead. All of that is recorded in the Old Testament before any of it even happened. And of course, there are a lot more prophecies coming. By the way, those of you that are um, in the Revelation study, I'm planning on starting on the 19th. So um, just so you know that, because we'll be talking more about prophecy. But 2 Timothy 3.16, we read all scriptures inspired by God. And I'm convinced that that's the case. And of course, that Jesus himself is God's final revelation of himself to us. And that's why the writer of Hebrews wrote, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him, through Jesus. God has spoken to the world in many ways over a lot of time, but in these last days, the most conclusive word of God concerning himself was Jesus. And so I think the evidence is everywhere that God is, and I think these questions could help us arrive at the conclusion. How do we explain creation? Where did we get this sense of right and wrong? Why does, why does beauty exist? Why does the whole world have this concept of God and how do we explain the Bible? Now, I don't expect this will persuade everyone. If you're a Christian here today, though, I want us to understand one thing, and that is that our faith is not a blind faith. You know, sometimes people say, you just need to have blind faith. It is not blind. There's a lot of evidence for what we believe and why we believe it. And I hope that this strengthens your conviction about that. For others of you, I hope it moves you just a little bit closer to seeking God and finding God and beginning a relationship with God because I think that's really what it's all about. Now, some of you may wonder, why doesn't God just show up? You know, instead of me talking about does God exist, it'd be nice if he just showed up here for a moment. Here he is. Say hi to everybody and then disappear. Then, then the question would be answered. It's not what God wants in terms of a relationship. In Hebrews eleven six, we read now, without faith, it's impossible to please God for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. The bottom line is this, that God wants a relationship with us and relationships are built on trust. And so he did not want to hand everything to us. He put the evidence out there and he wants us to explore the evidence and come to the conclusion he does indeed exist and then reach out to him, though he's not far from any of us, as Paul said. And so I hope you'll pursue until you find him if you don't know him today. Now, next week, I want to begin talking about some of the qualities or attributes of God. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you loved us so much as to reveal yourself to us. I realize you could have created this world and then just abandoned us, but, but you wanted a relationship with us starting with the Garden of Eden. 
And even when we failed, and even though we disobeyed, O oh Lord, you continued to pursue us. You found a way, O oh Lord, to cancel our sin through the death of your own Son on the cross so that we could experience forgiveness through faith in Christ. And so we're grateful and we're glad to know you. And I pray that in the weeks ahead, we'd come to know you more deeply and fall more and more in love with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.